You are looking live. I don't believe what I just saw. It is possible. There are no flags on the field. It's a miracle. Live from the Spider-Verse, it is the 252, what Sports Talk Radio sounds like when done by academics. I'm Chris Garretts with... Sam Mulberry. And not with Chris Moore, who is um, on assignment. Uh, sure, we'll call it to that. Rest. We'll call it that. So Chris will join us in uh, another episode once we get into March. But fortunately, we are joined by two guest co-hosts who will uh, actually be our interview subjects in segment two as we talk about sports and journalism, but are nice enough to sit in for the beginning of our show. So to my left on your radio dial, we have Bethel Journalism Professor Scott Winter, also the author of Nebraska Ball, Coach Tim Miles and Big Ten Team on the Rise. How's the Rise going this year? Uh, everybody thinks he's going to get fired next week. So, sorry, yeah, it's I going, going pretty well. has no right to ask It's this going question. pretty well, yeah. Sorry. And Jared Martinson. Jared's a uh, junior journalism major at Bethel University and sports editor of our student newspaper, The Clarion. Jared, thanks for joining us. I'm very, very thankful to be here. Usually I'm hosting my own podcast, but now being a guest, I guess I can oh, throw a plug in there. The script. Throw yeah, plug in right plug now. it. Plug it. Um, the Marty Party Podcast. Find it on SoundCloud and on iTunes. Not super frequent uh, as of late uh, with school and such, but um, once the NBA playoffs get rolling again, I think we'll be kind of back in business. So speaking of basketball, we thought we'd uh, ease you in here because I know you're both big hoops fans by asking you a college basketball question. What is the significance, the most important significance of the Zion Williamson injury that we all watched last week? So if you haven't seen this, uh, it was like in the first 30 seconds of the game against North Carolina, his shoe explodes, right? So we can talk about Nike here if you want. Uh, so I don't know exactly the severity of the injury. I don't know if that's clear he yet. He missed last game. I believe he's still day-to-day. So there's significance here for the ACC, the NCAA tournament, but uh, all the commentary I read pointed to larger issues around you know Nike's brand, uh, but also questions about amateurism and compensation to student-athletes. And we've already talked a couple episodes ago about the uh, one-and-done requirement, and NBA is suggesting that might change. So I don't know a lot about college hoops, so I'll hand it to you guys. What 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 do we make of what happened to Zion Williamson's uh, ankle and shoe? Well, ESPN normally only covers five athletes, you know, over a 24-hour period, so this knocks out about four hours, five hours of their programming mm-hmm. per day. So they have to go back to Tom Brady um, or Robert Kraft maybe. Um, so that's, hey, oh, that's, that's a big there. thing. But uh, uh, small, smaller thing is a former student of mine uh, was watching the game. He's, he's kind of a Duke nut, and he noticed that Barack Obama, who called, you know, the shoe blowout, if mm-hmm. you saw all the – uh, all the action on social media, he, he pointed and called it out. And my student who's at the Washington Post now, uh, the, the most shocking thing of the whole Zion thing was that he realized he has the exact same coat that Barack Obama has. So he thinks he's presidential material. So that's yeah. a micro thing. But, you know, overall, I think people don't realize the kind of power that shoe companies have in this sport. And when there's even when there's a scandal involving shoe companies, the, the the amount of money that's involved in these relationships between schools and, and companies like this, it makes it all get swept under the rug, which makes Gopher fans get angry because their scandal seems a lot smaller than what happens at UNC or what's happened at Louisville or other places. But, you know, money speaks, mm. and it just money wasn't as loud back in Clem Haskins' days in the 90s. Again, I don't know this sport as well, but I was trying to think, like, how much money is kind of in play 
at that moment in a basketball game. When you think of shoe contracts, coaching compensation, television deals, uh, I don't even know how to quantify what this means to a place like Duke University. But and then you've got these athletes on scholarship, right, for a year, and then they're going off to the NBA, hopefully. Um, so, I mean, this is something we're actually going to do a college basketball episode in a week or two. But this is partly, like, help us think through, like, what do we need to think about? What's the history of all of this? How has college basketball changed? So, I'm, Jared, I know you watch a lot of basketball. What did you think when you saw, saw this? Well, in the NBA today, it's it's all about player empowerment and whether they can have the choice to go where they want and force their way out of places and make decisions for themselves. And in college, you, like, in the past, that, that hasn't been the case. You're basically under control um, of the university, of the, of the program that you're playing for. So I'm starting to think that, um, for, like forward thinking, that that's what the college, college basketball is going to turn into is players are going to be able to decide, do I want to sit out after something like this happens to, to Zion Williamson where mm-hmm. he gets a scary injury, oh, his draft stock might drop if he keeps playing or if he tr- gets hurt again. Um, so I'm starting to think that, like, obviously traditionalist basketball, college basketball fans are going to be like, oh, why would you not keep playing? You're playing for your school. This mm-hmm. is all about pride and for the university. But I don't think that matters to kids anymore. And that's become something that is just kind of in the, on the back burner, and it's, it's more about the future than the, the legacy. Well, and I thought about, um, when I was thinking about that, I thought about Leonard Fournette, like, didn't play in his bowl game. And we increasingly see that in football. Guys will – opt out of the, the last game of the year um, just to protect themselves. I, when I saw the, the, the shoe explode, for one thing, I first thing I thought about was, was Nike, and I thought, well, A, it's good that this happened to someone like Zion because um, he's still going to make <laughs> he's going to make his money. And I just wondered, like, so how much more does Nike have to pay him if they want to retain mm-hmm. him? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or, like, how much does, because he is now, has a shoe-related event, like, how much more does that make his shoe contract? Um, you know, and if you're Under Armour or somebody who's trying to get him, like you have such a great commercial you can make about how like Nikes can't hold Zion, you need to get these. You know, like there's, I don't know, I, for some reason I thought of all the commercial aspects of it when I saw it. Well, I mean, appropriately. I, so a question we had talked about a couple weeks ago that I'll pose to whichever if you want to answer this is, what do you think of the requirement that? I guess it's not required. Like, after you graduate high school, you have to do a year before you come to the NBA. And so you could do this in a foreign league, but generally means the NCAA. Um, I thought I'd heard the NBA is considering actually reducing the, the age right back to 18. Mm-hmm. Um, should So the question we'd be, should these athletes have to do a year in college before going to the NBA? Should it be more than that? Should it be less than that? Jared, do you have a take as someone who covers a lot of student athletes at a different level of the NCAA? Right. Um, I, I get to watch a lot of basketball throughout the year. I'm a high school basketball nut um, from Minnesota. I get to watch guys that are going off to places from Stanford all the way to St. Thomas. Um, mm-hmm. And I I would say that I don't think there has to be a requirement um, Zion Williamson would have been the number one pick in the NBA draft last year if he had got, uh, gone straight out of high school. At, at least, probably, most likely, mm-hmm. um, to a lot of people, he would have been. So, um, I'm I'm on the side of player empowerment to an extent. Like, obviously, I don't think that um, guys should be able to just say whatever they want and just totally destroy franchises' integrity and and uh, capability to do what they have to do. But um, I would say that I, I think it's it's it might be better for these kids to go right away and see what they can find. Like, it's their decision, ultimately. I think it ultimately should be their decision to whether they want to go or whether they don't, whether they want to go the college route. I think the NBA is realizing that they're kind of, um, they have some, some, they're part of the problem that is the 
lack of honesty in the NCAA about who these students are. They want to claim they're scholar athletes and they want to they want to, you know, talk about how great they are in the classroom and all that, but you've noticed that they've taken the majors off the the name cards, you know, right. because students don't even have a major anymore because they they have to be in 12 credits in the fall, I think it is. And then in the spring, they don't have to take any. I mean, as soon as as soon as the spring semester starts, I mean, none of these players are going to classes in certain programs that don't you know, ethically follow through with their scholar athletes. And so it's really uh, a game. And that's, that's kind of why I was talking to uh, an AAU coach the other day who said, you know, Calipari is actually the good guy in all this. Mm-hmm. At least he's honest mm-hmm. with everybody about what he's doing. And he, his feeling is that if he can at least get them a feel of what it's like to be in college and push for it, but, but not uh, pretend that they're doing anything that they're not, which is just bringing in these mercenary recruits to win a championship at least he's honest you know and i feel like too much of it is dishonest and you might as well let them go where they want to go okay we'll come back to talk about kentucky and other programs when we do a march episode in college basketball uh continuing in that vein though sam i think you have something to tell us inspired in some way i don't know by former miami hurricane rick berry yeah so uh two years ago uh, Malcolm Gladwell did a one of in his first season of Originist History did an entire podcast about underhanded free throw shooting, um, which I shared with my son, um, and he he loves Malcolm Gladwell, but he was really obsessed with that, and he just decided your I, son who is how old thirteen loves Malcolm Gladwell. Yeah, and, R- and, and Rick Barry that. is his favorite basketball yeah. player. Yeah, so, Rick Barry's a jerk, really. A jerk. Well, it's it be, only because of this episode. Okay. So anyhow, so my son this weekend was the was the end-of-the-year tournament for the eighth-grade basketball rec league thing. And uh, now he went into this weekend not having scored all year. Um, uh, and in the third, fourth-place game of the tournament in the last period, he was fouled to shoot one to shoot a one-and-one. One. First free throws of the year, <clears throat> he promptly <laughs> took an underhanded free throw and made it. Everyone in the, in the audience was, like, cringing when they saw him do it. Then he made the second one <laughs> underhanded as well. Are these on video? I don't. I don't. I don't have them on video. No. Okay, and that's that's the saddest thing I've heard all day. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I was just trying to tell a triumphant story yeah, about no, how no, podcasts. This is not a sad world. tale. This is. Sam no, it's so great. That's a great moment. Good yeah. Parenting. Yeah. Right. Well, I look at um, the frustrations that one of our colleagues, Eric Leafblad, has with his Wisconsin Badgers. And they, their best player, who scores 20-25 a game, can't stay in the game for the last five minutes because he can't make a free throw. Even though he has the best touch maybe in the Big Ten, there's just a mental block there. And it's amazing to me that more people don't try it, that Shaq didn't try it, mm-hmm. that that DeAndre Jordan didn't try it, that most of these guys who are famous for not being good at didn't try it because Rick Barry um, – it's almost people make fun of it for the way it looks, but Rick Barry almost took it as a as a as a prideful thing. Right. Like I can I don't mind looking this dumb yeah. and beating you this way. It's always been my dream to win like a, a USTA tennis match while using like a seventies Jack Kramer <laughs> racket and, and wearing jeans <laughs> or, cut, or cut off jeans. Oh, yeah, yeah, exactly. Nice, right. And just beating somebody who's got all the right equipment. By the way, I think we should do an episode sometime on Bethel Humanities faculty being Big Ten basketball fan. Like it's like we love misery it's weird. in some yeah. way. It and somehow correlates. it's the best conference in the nation. Somehow it is, yeah. Right. And, and there's something ex- mathematical about it. There's something yeah. emotional about it. Yeah. yeah. Well in the end, uh, we probably need, just need to get our co ed intramural team and start 
start going up against the Jared Martinsons of the world. Yeah, first game tonight. Probably it. All right. Well, <laughs> uh, one more topic that Sam suggested has been the news over the weekend, which is you might know the 2024 Summer Olympics are coming back to Paris, I think for the third time. And the way they do these things now, uh, the host cities get to propose new sports, which the IOC then approves. And you may have heard that Paris has proposed breakdancing, or it'll simply be called breaking, I believe. And this has actually been done at a kind of junior Olympic level. I'm wondering what you all think about the notion of breakdancing becoming an Olympic sport. Now, obviously, this gets at our very notions of what sport is and what it isn't. Uh, we'll be talking about bowling later on. But what do you think about breakdancing becoming a sport? I, again, like I feel like I'm out of my turf, but you guys seem like you're breaking aficionado as you follow it. Um, yeah, I'm definitely an aficionado, and I don't think it's fair because obviously Iceland has the advantage. It's just not going to work. No, I, I think it's a lot more athletic than a lot of things that we do. I, at the last university where I worked, they had an, an, a nationally ranked uh, women's rifle team. Mm-hmm and men's bowling team and women's bowling team. And so it's pretty hard for us to argue. And there were great stories there. So for me, any sport that gets a, a great story is fine by me. Well, I mean, the fact you mentioned shooting is interesting because at least some of that has to do with old Olympic associations with soldiers, right? So the modern pentathlon is actually a 20th century European officer's version of the pentathlon, right? It's all the skills you would need to be a good officer in, in these armies. At the same time, if you think about what's happening with, it takes skill, right, and eye-hand coordination and calm and discipline, but it's not exactly, unlike, say, biathlon in the winter, it's not a cardio test or anything. And that's a sport, no one questions. Mm -hmm. And so to what extent are our notions about what is a sport culturally conditioned, historically contingent, you know, is breaking? That seems in many ways to be a very kind of kinesthetic activity requiring fitness. Jared? I... uh, had no clue that this was a thing. Oh, you were my go-to today. person. I just assumed um, for some And I, I wonder if that kind of makes my case for why it is or isn't a sport. I don't necessarily lean one way or the other, but I, I had no clue that this happened over the weekend. I did not hear this news, and maybe I was just looking in the wrong spots, but like, it just, I don't know, maybe in terms of how much we hear about it and mm-hmm. how much is covered, I think that plays a huge role into, into what we consider sport or not. And and I think it's whatever gets ratings at this point. Yeah. Sports is, is – I mean, ESPN is not a journalistic organization. Outside the Lines is a journalism program mm-hmm. with journalists on it. Mm-hmm. But ESPN has long ago ditched the, the – well, they haven't publicly ditched it. But internally, they ditched the fact that they were covering sports. They're in – in league with these sports, um, which we might get to later, but I think we will. but they, um, you know, if they can sell it, if they can sell it to advertisers, if they can get ratings. It's a sport, and I think like if you read between the lines of the press release, it, I mean, uh, they use language of younger, more urban. I mean, there's a demographic they feel like they're yep. losing with the traditional set of Olympics, and everything's covered like a sport now. I mean, what is the voice? Mm-hmm. What is what is politics on CNN from seven to ten? It's it's coverage of a sport. That's all it is. Now, Sam, what are the odds? I know this is close to your heart here. What are the odds that lightsaber fencing will also be on the docket? I think that's going to take a little bit longer. This is a serious thing. <laughs> it is. So yeah. the French Fencing Federation Count me in on that. I'm, I'm one has of the actually added the lights. There, this is a thing. You pay like five hundred dollars for a kit. They actually do this along with epee foil and saber, and they make the case like. Uh, their sport is tied in some ways to like movies. You know, they they had popularity when fencing things. They were Quidditch, Flynn's other popular. things like that, like Harry Potter stuff. As I'll well. put my money on George Michael Bluth. <laughs> <to win that. laughs> 
Wow. Okay. So that that's that's what you get when you bring these co-hosts in. Uh, Sam, can we catch up on what we did last week? Let's see. Were our three to see worth the watch? You know, this might be our weakest uh, our weakest yeah. week so far. Uh, Chris Moore had the Mayak basketball playoffs. Uh, both Bethel men's and women's <laughs> lost their games on Thursday. It's hard to say not worth the watch because it would be saying don't watch Bethel stuff. Um, but so I'm going to give it a really soft worth the watch. Uh, I picked the uh, Slyak Athletic Conference or the Slyak Men's Basketball Tournament. Um, Eureka College went into the tournament uh, 11 and 14, upset number two seed Greenville 163 146. I actually watched that game mm-hmm. online. How was um, it? It turns out that 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 the Grinnell system's kind of boring to watch. There's a lot of substitution breaks and a lot of fouls, but it was kind of interesting. So mm-hmm. it was. It, I'll give that a, a, a soft worth the watch. Kind of a curiosity factor. Yeah. The watch. interesting thing is Eureka won the second game. Uh, won the the, cha- the championship seventy to sixty nine. So they scored a lot less the second <laughs> in the second game because they weren't playing against a Grinnell team. Mm-hmm. Chris, you picked uh, this Labandama. Yes, uh, auto rally. The only thing I could find is who won, and it was two names from people from different countries. So Kenya's Manvir Barian, Barian, and Scotland's Drew Sturrock. One, I think they're on the same team. <laughs> Is that how you saw that going, Chris? <laughs> I, as far as I knew, that was exactly how it was going to turn out. Uh, I have to say, I was part of me was hoping you wouldn't even be able to find out who it, won because it, it was so hard to find, to find out if this was happening or not. So the very fact that this was actually raced, I feel vindicated by. I'm gonna. It was impossible. to I'm see, not sure so it's not worth this. the watch. Yeah. I, I have to say, my wife and I had to stop following the Slyak because it was just getting too emotional for us. Yeah, yeah. We our happiness was tied to results too often, and we had to we had to step away. Okay, we'll come back to to your emotional attachments in the second segment, <laughs> Scott. It's okay, a big, it's a big part of what we do with those interviews. Uh, finally, I'm very happy to report on our Mount Rushmore of baseball history poll. So, gentlemen, we broke down 30 nominations, reduced it to a ballot of 10, had almost 100 votes. It was pretty good for what we do. Uh, Not surprisingly, Babe Ruth and Jackie Robinson tied atop the table, each got about a quarter of the vote. Roberto Clemente was third with 14%. And then for fourth, there was quite a race. And in the end, I don't know what he would think of this, but Sabermetrics guru analytics founder Bill James got 9% of the vote, edging out Marvin Miller, Branch Rickey, and Barry Bonds. So I don't know if we have any response to that. I I was thrilled. He I feel made vindicated. The yeah. top ten. I'm not sure what I think about Bill James being on Mount Rushmore. As someone who actually bought the abstracts back in the day and read every page of his new baseball encyclopedia, I don't know if I like this result too much. But we have discerning fans, I, and they are not bound by. Convention. The only one of those four I had in mind was Clemente. I thought that was an obvious one, but I, I had Billy Bean on rather than Bill James, just because he had the courage to act on it. You yeah. know, yeah, or he had the opportunity to act on it. Yeah, that's true. That's true. All right. So thanks for voting. We'll be doing another Mount Rushmore next week as we turn to college basketball. But after a break, we're going to come back talk more to Jared and Scott. As uh, as representatives of sports journalism, ask how that profession has changed and remained the same over the last few years. We'll be right back. There are four faces on Mount Rushmore, carved in a mountain of stone. Men who lived and died for a nation, giants in a land all their own. From the mansions of Virginia to the tents of Valley Forge, across the water. This week in sports history, 
Dallas, Texas, February 27, 1987. Southern Methodist University learns that the NCAA has canceled its entire football season, plus all home games for 1988. The so-called death penalty resulted from a slush fund that paid players tens of thousands of dollars, plus hush money to the head coach and athletic director. Washington, D.C., February 28, 1972. Indiana Senator Birch Bayh proposes an amendment to the Higher Education Act that would prohibit discrimination by sex in federally funded education programs. Four months later, Title IX becomes federal law, transforming women's sports in this country. New York, New York, March 1, 1993. Yankees owner George Steinbrenner is reinstated, three years after being banned for paying a gambler to dig up dirt on outfielder Dave Winfield. The Yankees contend for the playoffs that fall, then finally return to the postseason in 1995, their first appearance in 14 years. Hershey, Pennsylvania, March 2, 1962. In a season in which he averaged 50 points a game, Wilt Chamberlain sets the all-time single-game scoring record in NBA history. In front of just 4,000 fans, the Warrior Center scores an even 100 points. The rebound, Luckenbill. Back to Ruckwick. Into Chamberlain. Listening to This Week in Sports History. Oh, newspapermen meet such interesting people. They know the lowdown, now it can be told. I'll tell you quite reliably off the record about some charming people I have known. Or I meet politicians and grafters by the score. Killers plain and fancy, it's really quite a bore. Okay, so welcome back to the 252. This week we're talking about journalism with, again, journalism professor Scott Winter and student journalist Jared Martinson. So, uh, guys, we always start by asking you to kind of tell your own story. Uh, so however you want to construct it, what is your sports story? This could be as a participant, as a spectator, maybe you were a reporter right from the very beginning. Jared, how, how did you get into sports? We were kind of talking about this off air, but uh, it began with me for – um, from a little being a little kid watching Twins games on TV and Dick Bramer and Burt Blylevin were the two voices that I heard most often those those summer nights. Um, I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know there are a lot of opinions. Uh, I'm, not, I'm personally uh, not a Burt guy. Yeah. Not Burt guy either. Um, but it, it was more of the the structure and the technique that that kind of caught my eye and my ear. Really, um, I wanted to be a broadcaster mm-hmm. from listening to those guys. Um, I would mute the TV and do my own. Um, while I was watching a game, um, I would like write down all these things that I, I could hear him say, like or John Gordon on the radio, "Touch them all, Justin Morneau," that kind of thing. Um, always wow. caught my I'm eye. Sorry. <laughs> there's, there's an age gap here. Um, but like just those kinds of things, I remember being really as much like baseball is probably my third favorite, uh, maybe second. Football is slowly declining on my list, but um, baseball was kind of part of my a big part of my life when I was little. Um, I was at the dome for the 2006 final game of the season when we mm-hmm. beat when we won the champion the division title on the last day of the year and Morneau won the MVP, um, Mauer won the batting title. All that stuff is like so clear in my mind. Um, so sports has always been like part of my life. Played growing up, um, actually played basketball all the way through and football all the way through high school, and then uh, played basketball here for two years at Bethel. 
before deciding to hang it up and um, kind of focus on more long-term stuff, um, including this. <laughs> uh, so that's kind of been kind of my whole life in terms of uh, but basketball really kind of took the forefront in high school. I I became just so persistent on knowing every everything about the the bubble I lived in, the high school basketball bubble of Minnesota. Um, so name a high school in Minnesota to wherever it is. I probably can name a player from there. Mount right. Park Academy. Uh, Mount Sorry, Park Academy. I know their I know their head coach. Um, they're, so, they're a lot better than they used to be. Yes, that's absolutely. all I know. Like, well, they made the, they made the they made the section final last yeah. year, and they and they on a historic run. But so, like, we don't have to get into that. Actually, what I mean we, as as you talk about this, Jared, which you know to me is a very familiar kind of story. At the same time, like the story of how you came to sports is one of like passion and emotion. But you're also now someone who's looking at a career in journalism or broadcasting, where I mean, there's still is passion, I'm sure, but there also is some probably a sense of detachment, right? Has that been a Absolutely. difficult transition from being fan slash athlete to becoming someone who covers the games? Luckily for me, um, my dad was never a diehard of anything, um, and not to the sense of being a Twitter rube about it, you know? Like, like there are a lot of people on Twitter. I, I have a special disdain for gopher basketball fans in this regard. Um, but he, he was never super attached to one team enough to like make it a, re- a religion mm-hmm. per se for for our for our household so i grew up having a detached mind to really all sports and knowing that the vikings are going to disappoint us every year knowing that the twins are never going to get past the first round especially when they play the yankees knowing that timberwolves are never gonna make the playoffs um those kinds of things have always been just kind of part of me and also i'm really even more more even more thankful for not being attached to a college sports team because um, it's always changing, and I knew that I didn't want to become as I as I became more involved in the recruiting world of things, um, talking to players. As that's that's one of my jobs as a North Star Hoops reporter. Um, I I can't stand people that are in kids mentions on Twitter, um, asking like why didn't you pick to stay home? Why are you going to this place? Like kind of goes back to the whole player empowerment thing. Mm. Um, but like when it comes to covering. I've never had to worry about being attached, other than other than probably my own my own high school after the first probably year or two out of out of well, after I graduated. But um, it's never been a problem for me in the fact that like I I, I just love the leagues more than anything. I love the the meta of it mm-hmm. almost more than um, more than any single team. I like I don't care about the NBA only because I care about the Timberwolves. I care about the NBA and. It, within that, I care about the Timberwolves, you know, kind of okay. a backwards thing. So, Scott, what's your story? I know in some senses, I mean, Jared mentioned his dad. Your dad is uh, closely bound up with the world of sports. Is that part of your story? Yeah, so my dad was going to be an NHL hockey player up in Saskatchewan until he blew out his knee in 1968. And back then, when you blew out your knee, you really blew out your mm-hmm. knee. So then he was going to become an NHL official, and that didn't work out. The knee wasn't holding up, so he became a, a journalist, and he was the Sid Hartman of North Dakota. Um, and I think you had to meet him at a game, and you, oh, you found out that to be true. Um, so I grew up uh, in a household where I was told to um, clear the dishwasher, which I didn't always do, clean my room, which I rarely ever did, and then go cover that hockey game, which I got minimum wage, $3.15 an hour to do. So I did it, uh-huh. um, So and I did it a lot, and it was good gas money. It was good date on Friday night money. Mm-hmm. Um, then in high school, I was, uh, the, as a freshman, I was like 12th man on the end of the bench. 
for varsity, and then sophomore I was 12th man on the end of the bench, and then my junior year I became the 12th man on the end of the bench, and then my senior year I airballed a hook shot in the biggest game of the year and never got to play again the last 10 games of the year. Dropped a handoff at state. My whole high school athletic experience was pretty miserable. I once dunked in an intramural game in college, though. I want Jared to know that. How high was the hoop? Um, It was downhill. That's all I'm going to (laughs) say. So um, then I put myself through college by being a sports writer, being the one thing I never wanted to be, which was my dad, Mm -hmm. um, because nobody wants to be their dad. But I put myself through college doing that. And probably the, the moment that sticks with me is, I was going to school at University of North Dakota in Grand Forks, but covering the North Dakota State Bison, the successful football team down in Fargo. And every time I covered a game in which the Bison won, everybody in Grand Forks would hate my guts for it because I was reporting all this negative stuff. And I said, reporting negative stuff? What are you talking about? Well, we hate the Bison. And that's when I learned about journalism and sports journalism and the biases we we carry. And, and it, it rose to the point where I was sitting in the uh, University of North Dakota football coach's office uh, interviewing a, him about the upcoming NDSU-UND rivalry game. And he asked me if I had transferred schools and if I had lost my soul. Um, so, yeah, people people have strong opinions when it comes to sports journalism, uh, probably stronger than politics even. Yeah. So, yeah, that's my story. And then uh, eventually uh, I ran away from that. Uh, by the end of college, I couldn't stand sports at all. I wasn't a fan anymore of anything except the Twins. Okay. I held on to the Twins because they won championships my senior year of high school, uh, or World Series my senior year of high school and my senior year of college. Okay. And uh, I couldn't. Could, I don't think they could have done it without Herb Carneal or me. So. Probably. Yeah, no, that makes sense. Um, so maybe I'll start with you, Scott, with this question. How is sports writing or sports journalism uh, both fundamentally similar to and different from journalism as a larger field? Is it an entity unto itself, or is it simply one way of engaging in journalism? Hmm, that's a tough question. One way that's different from overall journalism is that it's growing. Like, there are lots of jobs in sports journalism and lots of different kinds of jobs. And the market is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And, and, you know, it's a great place for my students to go if they're interested in sports. That's a good thing for them, for their job, uh, for their futures. Um, As far as what's the same and what's different, I think most of coverage, especially if you look toward 24-hour news channels that I would argue are not journalism, but also if you look in magazines, you're seeing that a lot of the best journalism is happening in sports, Mm. uh, in ESPN, the magazine, in Outdoor Magazine was probably the forerunner of this, uh, or Outside Magazine, I'm sorry, um, and Sports Illustrated, some of the best profiles ever done. Uh, have been done in sports, and I think a lot of uh, news side and um, political reporting, state government reporting, all that is looking to sports for finding ways to be more relevant, more interesting, you know, things like that. So, what are they doing right that you admire, and that maybe others are looking to? Well, uh, Sports Illustrated is still holding on to the deep dive. There's still two or three good deep dive stories. I just used deep dive. I can't believe I did that. That's from the sports talk you world that I blame Jared for. Um, they, they're still spending three weeks uh, hanging out with somebody and spending three months doing a great story mm-hmm. on them. And you don't see that very often. I was just in uh, the office of a colleague who, who said, why can't anybody tell me if this, this Trump tax plan is a good thing or a bad thing for families? And I told her, because journalists don't have time Mm -hmm. to understand anything anymore. Mm -hmm. And so skimming the surface all the time, uh, looking for clicks all the time, um, trying to 
you know, be more of a Bleacher Report than a Sports Illustrated all the time, uh, it's a problem. And it's a problem, I think, across all forms of journalism, really, political journalism, you name it. Okay. Jared, you, um, you're you writing for the Clarion, which is their student newspaper. Uh, you're a journalism major, but I heard you say what you were really interested in as a kid was broadcasting, right? And I know it's something you've done here at Bethel and might do in the future. Do you see a difference between journalism and broadcasting? Do they overlap? Do they part ways at some point? I would say that they should re- they, they require, I think, to do it really well, the same detachment of cheering um, and fangirling, so to say. Um, I think that if you cover a game like and you write a, write a story on it, you're, you're looking to tell the truth about the game. You're not looking to only write about the highlights. You're looking to find the turning points. Scott, we, we had a, a class over interim uh, for sports reporting where we we really changed up our game coverage. Like before, previous before that, um, we had been just kind of recapping the game as it was, as we saw it, mm-hmm. as the game uh, uh, that we saw. But then um, after some good deep dives into <laughs> <Ew>. <laughs> into uh, some other ways of, and techniques of doing that, we found that like there's way more than what just happens in the game, and if it's a win or a loss, you, you like you portray it uh, how. Like you really should, I think. Sports used to be great for the for the fanboy, right? If you weren't good enough to make it to the majors, you could become an announcer, mm-hmm. you could become a journalist, and you still got to hang out with with mm-hmm. the with the athletes that that you know you admired or that you were friends with, and so on. And so when my dad did sports, he would go to games, he would write about them, and then he'd go home, you know, and then he'd write about the next game coming up and that game. But you can't do that anymore because the only people who want to read about a game are people who who care about that team or care about that game and if they cared about that game they already saw the game right what can you give them that they don't already have and if they didn't go to the game they probably don't care enough to go and it's your job to find an angle on on the game on a player on a moment that happened a magical defining moment that's going to make people care who don't care enough to um to follow that team. And when it comes to broadcasting on, on the other side of it, I don't think it's much different. I, I listen to the radio broadcasts of Wolves games, or I watch um, the, the Wolves games on TV with Dave Benz and Jim Peterson, and all the time I hear Dave Benz referencing, yeah, I was uh, at the media scrum today talking to these guys about talking to the opposing coach about what was, go- what was going on in current events for them. Like, it's, it's still reporting and news gathering. I don't, I don't think there's much difference um, in, in the work and, like, the day-to-day of it between well, journalists and broadcasters. But one difference, I guess I'd say, and maybe this isn't true for everybody, but in a sense, as a broadcaster, don't you either formally work for the team or very much, whereas to some extent, I expect the sports reporters, however chummy they might be with the players or their other contacts, like, they're not actually working for, but at the same time, they're often, you know, maybe their medium is in partnership with the league, right? How do you... How do you balance being a journalist or a broadcaster given the business of sports? Well, and, and that that goes back to what, I mean, a lot of people think the Internet broke journalism. And, and I've always argued that corporate um, journalism and bad relationships ruin journalism. So if you think back to our era of growing up with the twins, Herb Carneal, um, Herb Carneal did not work for the twins. Right. He worked for WCCO, mm-hmm. and that's who got the contract, mm-hmm. right? And he was the voice of the twins, but he did not work for the twins. So the twins could not fire him. Um, it, it, his name could be brought up at contract time when deciding which radio station to go with, but he did not work for the twins. Then the twins radio network came about, and Dick Bramer and Bert Blylevin are cheering in the press box throughout the game. I think 
Dick's got a little bit of perspective. Mm-hmm. I, I, I wouldn't say so for Bert. But um, unless they have some cachet like, like Dan Gladden does, I mean, mm-hmm. he can criticize, but you don't see that very much. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, th- those people are not journalists anymore, I would argue. But back in the day when the Timberwolves were really bad, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, Kevin really Harlan. bad. And Kevin Harlan had to call the radio games um, on the West Coast where they're just getting obliterated by the Lakers and the Kings and the Clippers and everybody. He knew going into a game that he's going to have to talk for two and a half hours or so in a game that's going to be a 40-point blowout, mm-hmm. right? And back home, it's going to be 11 p.m. at night, 11.30 at night. He's going to have to have something to talk about. So he did the work. And that's what I admire in the, in the, the broadcasters, the play-by-play and color people, a- analysts, who do the work. They find out anecdotes. They find stories. Kevin Kugler is my example. I think Corey Provis is another mm-hmm. excellent mm-hmm. example. If you hear Corey Provis do a game for Big Ten Network, again, he's in league with the league, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. But he does the work, and he knows stuff. And to me, there aren't enough journalists and broadcasters out there who know stuff or do the preparation required, you know? Yeah. Well, let me give you a different version of the tension I, I'm trying to hint at. So you might have seen, was it Outside the Lines, did this long profile of Bob Costas? Or was it, it was Mark Pinaroweda. Um Spent a year talking to him, right? Like dozens of interviews. In the end, Costas wasn't even sure he should have talked to him, he said. But... What got all the attention was Costas apparently was kicked off NBC's NFL coverage because he wanted to do one of his Sunday night commentaries on concussions, FTE. And, you know, I'm not a deep football fan, but something we did talk about last week is the ethics of watching NFL football given the effects on players. And it did make me wonder whether it's NBC with the NFL or NBC with the International Olympics Committee, like these are news gathering organizations in a sense who have larger stories they should be reporting on, whether it's IOC corruption or performance enhancement or concussions. And yeah, they are partners with the NFL or the International Olympic Committee with billions of dollars changing hands. How? I don't know if you get to this level when you talk to your students, Scott, but like how... How do you, I guess, like what, what are the ethical implications for a journalist employed by a news gathering organization like that? I think the biggest day we had in our sports reporting course was the day we talked about two CTE stories that were very difficult. Uh, one on, a, on an NFL level about Larry Johnson, if you remember him from the Kansas City Chiefs, and right, yeah. just how his, his brain just isn't working. He's still alive, and he's, and, he, and he's convinced he has it, and he wants his brain dissected. Um, by what he calls the guy in the Will Smith movie. Right. Um, and then there's one about an Iowa marginal athlete, mediocre athlete, but a tough kid in Iowa who just rammed his head into anything to, to get more playing time. And students were really <coughs> felt strongly on both sides of the issue. And separating themselves from that in order to be able to be objective and cover that is not an easy thing. Now imagine how hard it is ethically when you're in a contract with the NFL as a member of ESPN. Mm-hmm. I think it would be awful to be, it's Bob Lee, right, who runs outside mm-hmm. the lines, to be mm-hmm. a real true journalist, a really ethical journalist who asked uncomfortable questions for all the right reasons and still have to work at that network because of how much they they are just a, you know, a filter of happy NFL news. Mm-hmm. So I was going to ask you, Scott, one of the, so this is a preview of a course on the history and politics of sports. So as the historian, kind of my theme I want to keep bringing is continuity and change. So how have these things changed over time? So I was going to ask you, like, in our lifetimes, which are 
in the four decades now. Like, how, what's changed most about sports journalism? But I think we have to start with ESPN, right? So in our lifetimes, ESPN has entered the equation. We've seen the decline of newspapers. That's maybe a separate or related phenomenon. But let, let's talk about ESPN. How you keep alluding to this, and you don't think of ESPN as a journalistic organization, with the exception maybe of this one series or some magazine writers. Um, 30 for 30s. So what what has ESPN done to the larger project of sports journalism? How, how is adding that and then feeding it with college basketball and NFL contracts, how has that changed what sports journalists do? Well, I guess it depends on where you're at on the game board, but I would think if you're ESPN, you would argue that look at all the money that's come in in, in how so many more people are making a living off this and we've created this this huge industry that employs people and this is a good thing and, and there's more journalism out there than ever before. But um, what kind of journalism is it and is it journalism, I guess, is, is my question. Now, the decline in newspapers, I would argue, happened before the digitization of storytelling. Uh, I think it happened when when journalism went corporate and newsrooms got smaller and smaller because they were more interested in their... Mm-hmm stockholders than they were in their stakeholders. And that's true in sports journalism as well. Um, in fact, sports uh, found ha- had uh, less de- decline in the 80s and 90s because people wanted more sports coverage, but eventually it hit them too. So you're seeing a lot less from your local papers unless they can um, take interns and abuse them for you know meager wages and sometimes no wages at all. Uh, so yeah, you're getting less, and but you're getting more homogenized stuff. Mm-hmm. I think unless you have people who are gonna gonna find a new area in the market, which some of that the internet has been good for. So even if these economic trends are starting to affect sports, I also heard you say that you know if there's kind of a growth industry here, it's that I mean that's where you can get jobs is in sports. And so maybe a closing question here, and I can direct this to Jared too. How do you justify the attention sports gets from journalism? Like, is it simply, well, that's the consumer demand. People will read X number of stories in the Clarion or the Clarion's website or Facebook feed. Or do you have a larger kind of case of here's why it's important that we cover sports? For uh, me, that a vision that I've kind of tried to, tried to cast or tried to develop over time this year as a sports editor is that sports stories are never about sports. Mm-hmm. Um, and that can be kind of vague and on the on the surface level sounds like well okay then why are you covering it um but it's it's there's always something something better something more something deeper than a scoreboard or a box score uh and i think that all every every kind of that's what all journalism kind of comes to uh to a t is that it's it's always about the story and about what's deeper than what you just see like covered in the like on top and the highlights and all that stuff. Um, I think you can bring that back to to any kind of journalism, p- political, uh, like anything you see on on TV. Um, for sports, like we read a story about um, the first story we read was about a, a girl, in, a high school girl in Kansas City who uh, was trying out for the cheerleading squad, and underneath all that was a girl who had a dad in jail and a mother who couldn't take care of them and an abusive. Uh, uh, stepdad and just all sorts of things that um, you wouldn't see by just looking at someone trying for the cheerleading squad. So I think all in all, journalism uh, can can just be so much more powerful than just recapping what happened last night. Um, and that's where kind of I think our goal should be is to turn all journalism, whether that be sports or not, into uh, an avenue to, to tell stories. And that's like kind of what we base our whole program off of here. 
Tom Osborne, uh, former Nebraska head coach uh, who once ran for governor and lost, even though he's God in <laughs> Nebraska, he lost in the primary because he believed in, in the DREAM Act. Um, anyway, he, he told sports editor at the Daily Nebraskan for a story. He said, the saddest thing is that, I'm, I'm paraphrasing him here, the saddest thing uh, about Nebraska football is that when, when Nebraska loses, um, it affects the economy, hmm. you know. Hmm. It affects the Nebraska economy when they're not good. Um, there have been stories that have tried to be done that that, that um, domestic abuse goes up during during bad Husker seasons as well in Nebraska, and that's kind of so obviously there's a lack of perspective. Um, but I understand the allure of sports, and so do you guys, right? There's math there that's mm-hmm. interesting. There are clear winners, clear losers. And as much as you know, maybe we academics or artists want to complain about the the power of sports or the amount of coverage it gets. There are very few venues where you get hundred thousand people screaming. You know, you don't see that outside of sports very often in this world, right. right? Well, we'll have to make that the last word, Scott. Jared, thanks for joining us. You can read uh, Jared's work at the Clarion, and then what else? You've mentioned a couple other things. Yes, that uh, I write for the Prep Hoops Network, which mm-hmm. is a national now a national uh, based network um, in more more than half the country. So I cover high school basketball. Um, and recruiting from Minnesota, so go check that out at NorthStarHoopsReport.com. Okay. And Scott? And, yeah, you can buy my book, Nebraska Ball, or you could give me $2 and not buy it. <laughs> it would be a good deal for you. You won't have to read it. But more importantly, um, really look into sports journalism, sports communication. I, I think there are opportunities there. If you did that at Bethel, you could go to India and cover cricket over there mm. uh, in the slums, which is something we're going to do next January. Wow. Uh, you can go to New York and uh, cover um, you know, high school teams in Queens for the Queens Courier. Mm. Uh, there's lots of opportunities there, and we're finding really cool sports stories and, and really interesting places to put them. Okay, Thanks well, for having us. Yeah, we'll share some links on our Live from AC Second Facebook page so you can follow up on what they just talked about. Okay, we'll be back after a short break to wrap things up on this episode. Yo, G. Come and get your New York boats. New York boats right here. Come on, y'all. Get the boats, the boats, the boats, the boats, the boats, the boats, the New York boats, the Get in touch with the 252 by emailing us at livefromac2nd at gmail.com. Before we go on this week's episode of the 252, we've got three to see. Sam, kick us off. Uh, I'm going with Saturday, March 2nd uh, at 7 p.m. Murray State hosts Austin P in their last game before the Ohio Valley Conference Tournament. Why watch this? Because it's the last regular season game for presumptive number two pick in the upcoming NBA draft. Murray State sophomore point guard Ja Morant. Morant currently averages 24.4 points, 5.3 rebounds, and 10.3 assists per game to lead the nation by over two assists per game. Uh, Pro Bowling comes to Jonesboro, Arkansas this weekend as the PBA holds its last event before the World Series of Bowling begins next week in Michigan. Note, don't confuse this Jonesboro Open with one happening the first weekend in April. That's professional disc golf at a course called, I swear, Disc Side of Heaven. 
All right, then, Jared, uh, since you're here, I'll just mention, I'll make this the third to see. As winter sports wrap up, Bethel Spring Sports are gearing up. Sunday's softball opener was canceled because of a blizzard in Rochester, Minnesota. But I think the Royals will play this coming Sunday against UW-Stevens Point because I think it's at a dome in Northfield. Uh, can you break down the softball season for us? Softball I'm putting season, on the spot. I believe they were picked seventh in the preseason poll, so uh, definitely some expectations to be um, – to be over overstepped, I hope. Hopefully, this year. Also, the baseball team yep. will get started soon. Uh, they head to Florida for spring break, and then they'll come back and start playing. And I will be broadcasting those games online. So be sure to tune in from Florida. Be, really? No, not from Florida. The <laughs> one they come back. Okay. And there'll be two great baseball stories by Jared and his buddy Josh in the upcoming um, issue of the Clarion that comes out Should probably the day of, this post, middle of this week. Yeah, All right. Week. So, guys, thanks again for joining us. It was it was fun having you here. Um, Chris Sam? Moore's not here, so I will say Thank go you. Royals. <laughs>